There's a lot in that uh, very short video clip. I'm not going to talk about all of it because that would take too long, probably. Um, but hello and good morning again, everyone. I, uh, you may have to excuse me. I don't know if you'll be able to tell or not. I have a case of the cold feet this morning, um, which is largely because there was a lot of snow in the driveway when I went to shovel off my car. Um, it soaked right through my shoes into my socks, but that's fine. Um, one thing that I do, and I don't know if this is a good idea or not, and I don't know if it's necessary or not, it's probably not, because I don't know how many of you look in the bulletin beforehand and say, oh yeah, what's the scripture passage going to be this morning? Let me look that up and see if I can guess what Josh is going to talk about. Uh, probably most of you don't do that. Maybe I'm the only one who does that, I'm not sure. Um, but one thing that I do is, for better or for worse, I try to avoid spoilers when I put in that little title of the sermon and the scripture reading. Uh, must be, I don't know if it's the writer in me or what it is, but <coughs> judging from the scripture reading, probably you would have guessed we're talking about who is this? Who is this Jesus who can calm the storm? And that's not really true. Um, I'm not really talking about Jesus much at all this morning, uh, directly, that is. Uh, we are going to address that a little bit later, but let me pray and then we'll get into what I do want to talk about. <coughs> Lord, I thank you for this chance this morning to share. Um, I thank you for everyone who is here. Um, I, Lord, I just pray that as I speak for the next little while that you would um, speak through me, that you would use my words um, as your words. God, I pray that you would guard me from saying things that are um, not true or, or things that are not in line with your word. And I pray that you would give us all an openness of hearts and minds to understand what it is that you're trying to, to tell us this morning. Uh, might be something different for everyone. Um, Lord, I just pray that you would give us eyes to see a little taste of you this morning and then to respond appropriately. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So one thing, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, one thing that Pastor Zig has said a few times over the past few months when he's been up here is that we constantly and regularly underestimate God and overestimate ourselves. We underestimate who God is and we overestimate who we are. And that's basically um, almost identical to one thing that R.C. Sproul was saying in that video. This is what he said. This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. Those two thoughts go hand in hand, and that's what I want to talk about this morning a little bit. Who God is. What's he like? What's his nature like? And do we already know who God is? Maybe. Kind of partly. Sort of. Some of us maybe think we do. Maybe. I've been watching on Netflix over the past little while uh, some of Jerry Seinfeld's stuff. He, uh, it's, it's very good. I much appreciate him. Um, all of his stuff is funny, and almost all of it is very clean, which I appreciate as well because it's very hard to find that. So Netflix thought, okay, well, if he's been watching Seinfeld, maybe he should watch some of this other stuff. And so it's been suggesting these other comedians to me, uh, most of which are not as good. Um, actually, none of them are as good at this point. But one preview that Netflix wanted to show me of one comedian, he came out on the stage and he stood in front of this vast audience of people and he said, oh, hello, I'm kind of like Jesus. And I thought, man, where is he going with this? Is this going to be funny? I don't, I don't know. So he continued, I'm kind of like Jesus, but better. And I thought, oh boy, this is now dangerous territory. And he continued, I actually showed up. And I thought, wow, this is a guy who has no idea who God is. This is a guy who has no concept of the fear of God, no concept of the reality of who God is or of his power. And frankly, the disciples in that passage I just read aren't much better. 
right? They're in a boat with Jesus, and there's a storm going on. He's sleeping in the back. They say, oh, Jesus, aren't you going to do something? So he does. He gets up, calms the storm, rebukes the wind, and they're just shocked. Who is this? How could he do that? What did he just do? Shouldn't they have known better if anyone did? Or maybe the church should know better. I was in a service, um, heard a pastor speaking a, a few years ago about God's power and our addictions and God's power in terms of overcoming those addictions. And after the service, one woman I know said, her comment was this, oh, it's like he doesn't even know what an addiction is. And my immediate thought was, no, it's like you don't even know who God is. Like, do you understand? I don't think you get it. And a lot of the times we don't get it. We sing songs about God's power all the time, right? Sin's curse has lost its grip on me. Is that true? Maybe. How did that happen? Who breaks the power of sin and darkness? Right? Jesus, the King of glory, the King, of, the King above all kings. We don't know. God can do things like that, and he does do things like that. But we don't understand that a lot of the time. This next... <laughs> Next part I had to do for Lyric. He, Lyric told me the other day that the only reason he stays awake in my sermons is because I make movie references. So this is mostly for you, Lyric. Stay awake for the next two minutes and then you can do whatever you need to do. Um, I think our view of God as a church is often much like the Hobbit's view of Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. The Hobbits don't really know who Gandalf is. He's this old guy. He's got a huge hat. He's really tall compared to them. He's got this long beard. They don't have any of those things. He's quite a bit different than they are. He comes along every once in a while. They think, who's this guy? Oh, yeah, it's this guy again. The old man walks around. Oh, yeah, fireworks. That's what he's good at. He's good at fireworks. That's what he does. That's what he's known for. They don't have any idea that he's actually one of the most powerful people in the world. He's, he's a wizard. They don't know. He's just the guy who does fireworks. And that's kind of like us with God sometimes, I think. We don't really know. We don't really understand. We think, okay, God's quite a bit different than us. Uh, we don't really understand him. He shows up every once in a while. And sometimes we're like, oh yeah, God, thanks for showing up sometimes in my life. Doing whatever it is you do. That thing, that stuff you do. Oh yeah, food. That's the thing. We always have to thank you for the food. That's the main thing that you do in our lives. Uh, we don't get it. There's a scene at the start of Fellowship of the Ring where Bilbo accuses Gandalf of trying to take the ring, and, and Gandalf gets a little bit upset and shows just a tiny taste of his power. And Bilbo is so afraid, he shakes in fear, and then he runs to Gandalf for comfort. And I wonder, what would we do if we got a taste of God's true nature? What would our response be? So I want to talk this morning about someone who got more of a taste of God's nature and God's power than just about anybody in history. And we're going to look at how that affected him. Now, this guy is not necessarily one of my favorite biblical characters, which may be surprising to some of the youth because I feel like I say about every character that it's one of my favorite biblical characters. But um, it is one of my favorite biblical stories, though, so maybe that counts in the same category. We're going to look a little bit at Job this morning. Now, I, I imagine you're familiar with the story already, and so I'm not going to go through in, in super lots of detail um, exactly what happened to Job. But I'll give you the one-minute version, or the one-minute, 15-second version. Izzy, start the clock when you're ready. Um, so Job was a man of perfect integrity. This is what Job chapter 1, verse 1 says. This is how he's described. A man of perfect integrity. He feared God. He turned away from evil. He was the greatest man among all the peoples of the East. 
And God boasted about Job to Satan. He says, hey, Satan, check out Job. He's a righteous man. And Satan goes, well, yeah, that's just because you've blessed him with all this stuff. So God gives Satan free reign to attack all of Job's stuff, except for Job himself. And Satan goes, perfect. All right, so he takes away all his possessions, destroys Job's house, kills off all his children, and Job stays faithful to God. And so Satan goes to God again, and he complains. He's like, well, of course he's going to stay faithful. I wasn't allowed to do anything to him. So God says, all right, Satan, I'll give you free reign. You can do anything you want to Job as long as you don't kill him. So Satan goes, yes. And he afflicts Job with boils head to toe. And Job stays faithful. So far, it doesn't really seem like a taste of God's power, right? Maybe it seems like a taste of Satan's power. Uh, we'll get there. So Job's three friends show up. They sit with him for a week in silence, mourning. And then they finally start talking, and they talk for 35 chapters. A fourth guy comes in. They talk for 35 chapters. And that's basically the story of Job in roughly a minute and 15 seconds, hopefully. Um, <clears throat> So after those 35 chapters of conversation between Job and his friends, God responds. And does he ever respond? This is one of the prime shutdowns in history. God speaks out of the whirlwind in glory and power and splendor and majesty and also sarcasm, which I kind of appreciate. Kind of seems to come out of nowhere, but that's okay. So Job 38 if you have a Bible and you're trying to follow along, we'll be mostly in Job, but bouncing around a little bit more. Um, Job 38, starting at verse 2. This is God's response. Who is this who obscures my counsel with ignorant words? Get ready to answer me like a man. When I question you, you will inform me. It's a good start. Verse 4. Where were you when I established the earth? I don't know how many of you caught this, but last Sunday, I think it was during communion maybe, Doris played uh, Where Were You on the, on the organ, and it's one of my favorite hymns, kind of gives me chills every time. So this morning, we're not talking about where were, or sorry, where were you? Now I'm getting all mixed up. Were you there is the hymn she played. So instead of were you there, now we're asking where were you? This is God's question to Job. And this was another one of our favorite rebukes in our household when we were kids. Oh yeah, well, where were you? Of course, it didn't really work because we couldn't say, where were you when I established the earth? That didn't work for us. So I'm not sure why we tried to say it, but we did. It wasn't, wasn't really quite as effective as God saying it to Job. <coughs> so God continues. Verse 5. Who fixed its dimensions? Certainly you know. And he continues for two chapters in the same manner. He asks about Job's knowledge of and command of the earth. The skies, the sea, the dawn, the gates of death, light and darkness, snow, hail, the wind, the rain, the lightning, the frost, the constellations, how he feeds the animals, the uniqueness and abilities of various animals. There are some fascinating ideas and phrases in those two chapters. If you want some really cool poetic language that makes you wonder what in the world is going on, um, this is probably something to take a look at. This is where songs like Indescribable come from. Right? Who has told every lightning bolt where it should go or seen heavenly storehouses laden with snow? That's from these chapters. It's where songs like Behold Our God come from. Some of you might not know that one. We've done it here a couple times. You should go look it up when you get home. It's a great song. But it starts off, Who has held the oceans in his hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? This is the kind of language that God uses here. And it ends in chapter 40, verse 2. Is the end of God's... Um, 
comeback, really. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who argues with God give an answer. And Job's response, after being mentally blasted by all this information, is completely appropriate. This is what Job says in verses 4 and 5. I am so insignificant. How can I answer you? I place my hand over my mouth. I have spoken once and will not reply. Twice, but now I can add nothing. Job realizes that all this time he's been underestimating God and overestimating himself. And this is how he responds. He has nothing to say. I, I don't even know what to say. I'm not, I'm not going to even bother. But God's not done here. He picks up right where he left off. He talks about himself a little bit, and he challenges Job to do what God can do. He talks about his majesty and his splendor, and his honor and his glory, and his raging anger, and his humiliation of the proud, and his trampling of the wicked, and how he imprisons them in the grave. He says, Job, can you do any of that stuff? He talks about the behemoth and the leviathan, whatever they are, I don't know, I don't really care, but he talks for a chapter and a half about them. It seems excessive, but God goes on and on about these two mighty creatures. And Job is completely overwhelmed. Again, his reply is perfectly appropriate. If you go to chapter 42, starting at verse 2, this is Job's reply. I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this who conceals my counsel with ignorance? Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. When I question you, you will inform me. I had heard rumors about you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I take back my words and repent in dust and ashes. This is a man who God revealed himself to in a bigger way than pretty much anybody else. And despite the fact that he was a man who feared God, going back to chapter 1, verse 1, that's what it says, Job was a man who feared God, he had no idea the scope of who God was or who he was in comparison. And if God is boasting about Job and how righteous he is, and Job has no idea about how big God is, why would we expect to have any better picture? Does God boast about you when Satan comes to him? Does God say, oh yeah, check out that guy. Check out this woman over here. They're righteous. I don't know. Excuse me. If Job didn't understand the scope of God's nature, then we probably don't either. And when he does see this bigger picture, he responds in these few verses, and there's a few things that come out of that. Six that I picked out that I'll mention quickly. Um, there's probably more if you want to dig a little bit closer. First of all, he acknowledges God's sovereignty and power. This is what he says, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Secondly, Job acknowledges his own ignorance and folly. He says, surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. I had no idea what I was talking about, Job says. I was way in over my head. Third, he acknowledges how little he actually knew. I had heard rumors about you, he says, but now my eyes have seen you. I had heard rumors. I knew bits and pieces. People had told me these things. I understood a little bit, but I had no idea. Fourthly, based on all that stuff, Job 
reverses his earlier statements that God should have vindicated him. That's one thing that Job says in the previous chapters. God, I'm innocent. Why are you doing this to me? You should not have punished me in this way. Righteous people shouldn't be punished, shouldn't be suffering like this. But now Job says, I take back my words. I was wrong. You know best. You can do all this stuff. I can't do all that. You have the big picture. I don't. Job says, I, I, I take it back. I take back my words. Fifth, he humbles himself as much as he can. He says, I repent in dust and ashes. That's as low as you can get on the scale of humbling yourself. Or maybe as high as you can get on the scale of humbling yourself. Right? As extreme as he could be. I repent in dust and ashes. I mean, basically Job's life was dust and ashes at that point, so it might have been a little bit easier for him at that time. But he realized God's way bigger and way more powerful than I could ever imagine, than I ever thought. I'm just this tiny, tiny guy. I need to humble myself as much as I can. And finally, Job's sixth response here is not really in these verses. It kind of comes in the rest of the chapter. But God says to him, Job, your three friends who came to you at the start, they spoke some things about me that were not true. I'm not happy with them. You need to pray for them. And Job obeys. So his sixth response is to obey God's next instructions. Job prays for his three friends. They offer some sacrifices. And God accepts Job's prayer. So in all that, this whole story of Job really is all about God showing Job his sovereignty, his power. He's in control of everything that goes on. And Job certainly was not even if he wanted to be sometimes, maybe. So Job's response is key there. He does very well in those uh, few verses <coughs> showing a response to getting a glimpse of God's nature. And the response for us is key as well. When those moments happen, when we see a, a little piece of who God is, what should our response be? Should, they be, it should, be, should it be the same as those six things that Job did? Maybe. Let's look at a few other people in the Bible, who responded maybe a little bit differently when they saw or heard about or experienced who God was. First off is Rahab. Maybe an odd choice to start with. Joshua chapter 2. Rahab is in Jericho harboring the spies, the Israelite spies in her house. She goes upstairs to talk to them, and this is what she tells them. She says, okay, we know that God has done a bunch of miracles for you Israelites. We know that you're going to come and conquer our land. She says, everybody is panicking, and we don't know what to do. We're all losing heart. And so what's her response to the conquering power of God in that situation? She begs for salvation. She says, please spare me and my family. And they do. God does. Brings up an interesting side note, actually, that your view of God's power is very, very different depending which side of his justice you're on. For many of us, right, we can talk about God's power like, yes, God's power. If you're in Rahab's situation, it's more like God's power, oh no, if you realize that. So that's one example. Somebody else responded. She responds begging for salvation. What about Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, this was the, he was the proud ruler of Babylon, one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. Um, God warns him in a dream that he's too proud and he's going to be judged for it. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do anything about it. He continues in his pride and arrogance for another year. And then one of the weirdest things in history happens. The Bible says he's driven away from his people and he lives like an animal for seven years. What does that even mean? It's very strange. 
But this is what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. And finally, after seven years, he looks up to heaven, and God restores him to his original position. And Nebuchadnezzar's response to the humbling power of God immediately is praise. Now I, this is what he says, Daniel chapter 4, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the king of heaven, because all his works are true and his ways are just. And he tacks this on the end. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Nebuchadnezzar knew that better than anyone else, I think. So that's his response, praise. What about another Babylonian king, Darius? Right? He's a friend of Daniel. He kind of gets tricked into this whole thing. Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den. Darius didn't want that to happen, but there's nothing he can do about it. And so he's up all night. He's anxious. He wakes up in the morning. Turns out Daniel's okay. And Darius is very happy. What's his response to the saving power of God in this situation? It's to declare his power among all the people of his kingdom. But even more than that, he sends out a message to everyone in his kingdom. And he says this, Daniel's God is the true God. You have to worship him because all the other gods aren't anything. So a different response. Right? He's announcing it to everybody. This is what God's like. What about Isaiah? This is a commonly known one, right? Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees God on his throne surrounded by seraphim. What's his response to the majestic power of God in this situation? Woe is me for I am ruined. I, there's nothing I can do. But that's only half of Isaiah's response because a few verses later, God asked for volunteers to go and speak to the people. And Isaiah immediately says, here I am, send me. That's Isaiah's response. One more example. In 2 Chronicles, Solomon is praying to dedicate the temple, the newly built temple to God. And after he finishes his extremely long prayer, fire falls from heaven to consume the sacrifices that they had set up. It says, the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And it says the priests couldn't enter the temple because of the glory of the Lord. I thought, wow, that's intense. And then I realized, actually, the whole point was it wasn't intense anymore. Now it's in the temple. But still, <laughs> still, <laughs> that's a pretty extreme example. The glory of the Lord filled the temple, and nobody could even go inside because that's what the glory of God was like. So what is their response to the glorious power of God? 2 Chronicles chapter 7 says, All the Israelites were watching, and this is what they did. They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement. They worshipped and praised the Lord, for He is good, for His faithful love endures forever. All these people responded differently. Now, I think one problem that we as uh, teachers and speakers and preachers and Bible study leaders often have is that we try and dictate what the response is supposed to be to a certain passage, to a study, to a situation. And I don't think we can do that. There's many possible responses to seeing a glimpse of God and His nature and His power. Um, I've just given you six here. They're all a little bit different. And it's the same thing for us. If we get a little glimpse of who God is, what He's like, what He's doing, I don't know what the response is supposed to be. It depends on who you are. It depends on what situation you're in. It depends on what God's trying to show you in that circumstance. Maybe it's praise. Maybe it's worship. Maybe it's to beg forgiveness. Maybe it's to beg for salvation. Maybe it's to fall down in awe and worship Him. I don't know. Probably it should include, like Job and Isaiah, a step of obedience after that. 
regardless of anything else. Okay, so God's sovereignty, his power, all these things kind of work together. There's another aspect of God's nature I want to touch on from Job's story that I haven't talked about yet. And I think it's maybe the most important thing in God's whole monologue to Job. And it's here in chapter 40, verse 8. This is what God says. Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? Would you really challenge my justice? Would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? And I think this is something we do far too often. That was Jonah's problem, right? God says, go to Nineveh. I'm going to destroy them, so preach there. And so Jonah does, eventually. And then God changes his mind because Nineveh repents, and Jonah's so upset. What are you doing, God? I hate that you're so merciful. Now all the stuff I said is false. God says to Job here, would you declare me guilty to justify yourself? It's exactly what Jonah was doing. There's a a number of instances in the Bible where I think we question what happens, the result of what's going on. Okay, one that comes up in certain circles quite a bit is God hardening Pharaoh's heart, right? That's a common discussion with uh, certain groups in my life. Exodus chapter 8 says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How is that fair? How does that work? Shouldn't Pharaoh have the decision whether he lets Israel go or not, whether he's merciful or not? The Bible says very clearly, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. How does that make sense? I don't know, but would you really challenge my justice, God says? What about 2 Samuel chapter 6? The ark is moving along, the ark of the covenant. The priest who's carrying it stumbles. This guy, Uzzah, reaches out and catches it so it doesn't hit the ground. And you're thinking, ah, yeah, God's going to bless that guy. Maybe, you know, give him a promotion or something. He just saved the ark from embarrassment. No, what happens instead? God strikes this guy dead on the spot. How, how does that make any sense? Doesn't seem fair. I don't know. Maybe it's, maybe it's not fair to us. Would you really challenge my justice, God says. And some of you are thinking, oh yeah, well, Old Testament God is mean. right? New Testament God is nice. What about Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira, right? They sell their land, they bring, it, bring the money to the church, yeah, this is all the money we got from our land, have this money. But they lied about it. They didn't give it all to the church, they kept some for themselves. And what happens? God strikes them dead on the spot as well. Seems very extreme, seems unfair. Would you really challenge my justice? God says. Olivia came to me a couple months ago with a great question. We had been talking in youth about James chapter 2 and favoritism, how we need to avoid favoritism. And Olivia says, okay, Josh, what about the Old Testament? Didn't God show favoritism to Israel? Didn't he choose them as one special nation and not anybody else? I thought, man, that's a really good question. So we talked about it a little bit. And it comes down to a few things, right? One is this, would you really challenge my justice? Are we going to question what God's doing? Hopefully not. God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. 
Why? Why did he pick Jacob and not Esau? Why did he pick the cheater instead of this hunter? I don't know. God has a reason. He had a reason. He knows what's going on. Another thing that I think we have to bear in mind in a case like uh, showing special favoritism to Israel or to Jacob, same thing really, the rules that God has established for us to follow, don't show favoritism, are for us to follow. Right? God's got his own rules that he follows. We don't know what they are most of the time. Maybe we never know what they are. I don't know. But <laughs> we're not in the same realm. And so we can't understand what his motivation is all the time for these things. <clears throat> Another question that people ask me and you sometimes, what, what happened to all the people in the Old Testament? If Jesus is the only way to God, people in the Old Testament didn't have Jesus. What happened to them? Did they go to hell? Probably the best response is this. Would you really challenge my justice? I'm pretty sure God's got it figured out one way or the other. And I think he's making the right decision on that. What about people who have never heard about Jesus in our modern day world? There's people in far off corners of the earth and really close corners of the earth who have never heard about Jesus. Never seen a Bible, don't have the internet, they can't look up the Bible. What about those people? Are they going to go to hell because they've never heard about Jesus? I don't know. But God knows and who are we to challenge his justice? What about the situation? There's two people in the church, very sick. The pastor prays for both of them. The elders and the deacons pray for both of them. Their friends and family pray for both of them. One of them recovers and one of them dies. How is that fair? What's going on there? I don't know. But if you're going to say that's unfair or unjust, or God's not being fair to you because of that, it comes back to this. Would you really challenge my justice? What about two guys living side by side, growing up, two men, teenagers, doesn't matter. One has a problem with sexual addiction. One doesn't. One is completely free from that temptation. And the first guy gives in and, and commits adultery or looks at pornography or whatever it is. And he immediately says, why couldn't I be more like this guy? God, why did you give me this affliction? Why didn't you give it to this guy? Why couldn't I be like him and not even have any desire for that stuff? Comes back to this. Would you declare me guilty, God says, to justify yourself? One person tries to follow God and live according to his word and struggles to get by day to day. Can't find a job, can't find work can't provide for their family. Their neighbor, in the meantime, curses God, mocks God, hates God. Has a great job, can retire early, has a great family and friends, wealthy, lots of stuff. They're happy. How does that work? How is that fair? There's people all over the world who get away with all kinds of evil. There's so much injustice and unfairness and trouble in the world. Why me? Why would you do this to me? Or, or why would you pick on that person so much? Would you really challenge my justice, God says. So let's bring it back to the disciples for a second. Their question after Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves and calms the storm, who is this? Well, it's Jesus, but it's not just Jesus the man. This is the same God we've been talking about all this time. He shows glimpses of himself to Job and to all these other people from time to time in glory and in splendor and sometimes in raging anger. 
His sovereignty is something we can't understand. It's beyond our comprehension. This came up at our life group a couple months ago, and Ross made a comment along the lines of something like, words like king and lord aren't good enough. We, we don't have a word that encompasses what it means for God to be sovereign. We can't, there's nothing we can say to really describe that. Our words aren't big enough. His justice cannot be challenged. Everything he does is right, whether we understand it or not. Let me just point out, Job didn't get a reason for his suffering, right? We have these little tiny glimpses of like this God and Satan conversation, and we're like, oh, I guess that's the reason. Is that the reason? I don't know. But Job had no idea, right? At the end of the chapter, or at the end of the book, sorry, he finds out that God had everything in control all along, and that he's so much greater and wiser and more sovereign than Job is. And Job says, you know what? That's good enough for me. You had it in hand. You knew what you were doing. Now, fortunately for us, of course, sovereignty and justice aren't the only things there are, the only attributes of God there are, right? It's not just those two things and nothing else. Because we can talk of the power of God and the vastness of his nature, but we also can't forget that he's the one who sent his son to come in human form and to suffer and to be ridiculed and to be whipped and to be beaten and to be mocked and to be crucified and worst of all, to be abandoned, but also then to rise again and offer salvation to us, the despicable wretches that we are. Why would he do that? Because of his grace and his love and his mercy. We can't, we can't forget this. He's also our savior, he's our redeemer, our friend, and of course we can't forget that. But I would suggest we also can't forget the first part and focus too much on the second. One of the best illustrations I can think of of the combination of God's sovereignty and his grace is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Right, the song says he could have called 10,000 angels. And actually, the biblical account is even more extreme because it's 72,000 angels. But either way, that's a lot of angels. Jesus could have called thousands and thousands of angels to come and rescue him, to kill off everybody who was trying to capture him, to do whatever, because he's sovereign. He's ruler of all. He could have done that. But he didn't. And the reason he didn't was because of his grace and his love. And if that's not a reason to respond in some way, whatever that might be, if that's not a reason to respond, then I don't know what is. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for um, the glimpses of us that you give us in your word um, through the stories of people like Job um, and these other uh, biblical characters that we looked at this morning that you, you showed little pieces of yourself to. God, there's so much more there. Um, and Lord, I thank you for um, the ultimate uh, showing of your nature in sending your son. And, and there's nothing that tops that in terms of um, getting a taste for what you're like because then we could see you in human form. God, I just pray that this morning um, we would be open and aware of what your maybe trying to tell us about your, your nature. Some sort of glimpse of you, Lord. And, and as we go from here too, that in our daily devotions, our quiet times, our prayer, our scripture reading, our conversations, Lord, that you would um, show us those little glimpses of who you are and what you're like. And Lord, I pray that we would respond appropriately to those situations um, in the way that you would have us do so. So God, I just pray that as we wrap up the service this morning, you would 
be, be present here even in our closing and, uh, and as we go from here too. In Jesus' name. Why don't we stand together once more just to uh, sing our closing chorus, closing hymn. I sing the mighty power of God, and it speaks of a number of different um, aspects of God's power and, and His uh, authority and His creative power as well. I sing the mighty power of God That made the mountains rise That spread the flowing seas abroad And built the lofty skies I sing the wisdom that ordained The sun to rule the day The moon shines full at God command and all the stars obey. I sing the goodness of the Lord who filled the earth with food, who formed the creatures through the word and then pronounced them good. Lord, how thy wonders are displayed. Wherever I turn my eyes If I survey the ground I tread Or gaze upon the sky There's not a plant or flower below But makes thy glories known And clouds arise and tempests blow by depart today knowing the sovereignty, the power, the grace, and the love of God. And may we be like those Bible characters and respond in our own way. Go in peace. Amen.